Today is called Worship Can We Found in uh, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. That's page uh, what's that? 679 in your Bibles. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden and her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Today's reading is from Daniel 7, 9 and 10, skipping 11 and 12, and going to 13 and 14. That can be found on page 821 in your pew Bible. Follow along as I read. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like the wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Thirteen. In my visions at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Coming out from the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. One of the New Testament readings today is found in Revelation 1. 12 through 16, which is found on page 1137 in your pew Bibles. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. The second New Testament reading can be found in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It's on page 1088 in your pew Bible. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. May 4, my first Sabbath back, I brought to you the question that came out of the One Conference. What is center for you? Who is at the heart of your belief structure, your theology, if you will? And we talked about as uh, the answer in terms of Christianity, how uh, if Christ isn't, he ought to be perhaps at the very center of our theology and thinking. The next week, I talked about how we embody that, and I talked about that in terms of love, May 11. May 18, for those of you who weren't here, we came to what we would start calling a theology And I suggested to you that the story of Christ, as David Buttrick said, is embedded, it's it's centered in the story of God and humanity, which is a larger and broader story than just the story of Christ. Throughout this month, I've been asking the question if the story of Jesus and God and humanity is a compelling story. And as heretical as that notion or question may be, The idea there, of course, is to say, if it's still a story that has power, if it's still relevance, if it's still a meaningful story to you, is it meaningful, relevant, or powerful enough for you to organize your life around in any kind of meaningful way? You see, whether we do it deliberately or whether we do it accidentally, our lives are ordered around a story. It can be default. It can be a story we've inherited or a brokenness that we live out, or it can be a story that is chosen. Is God's story our story? You know, there are many puzzling texts in Scripture that are answered by this. You know, Jesus says, take up my cross and follow me. Actually, take up your cross and follow me. He's got his own And we ask, does it have to be a cross? And for the Christian, it does, because that is the story that our lives are going to embody. A story of self-sacrificing love. A story of incarnational, that is to say, embodied presence and grace. So when we talk about organizing stories in our lives, narratives that direct the way in which we live, that's the question that's been before you and remains before you today. Now, as a way of fleshing this out, I've been uh, thinking a lot about the idea of what it means beyond just a, a love. What does it mean to embody the story of God? What does it mean to, in our very lives, in our very beings, carry that story forward? And it's brought me back to theology, frankly. You see, theology would be the story of God. That's where we would start. 
There's a thing in theology called systematics, and I don't want to bore you with this if you're not interested, but I'm just going to lay this down. Systematic theologians engage the work of asking questions about the divine and, its, and the divine's relationship to everything in a very sort of deliberate, one-follows-the-other kind of way. And so systematics typically starts with theology and moves to Christology, and from there to pneumatology. Anybody know what pneumatology is? Spirit, the doctrine of the spirit, the study of the spirit. And then it goes from there to anthropology and beyond, ultimately to ecclesiology, which would be the study of gathering or church, the, the role that church plays in the larger uh, question of theology. So I'm kind of coming back to this structure and this idea as a way of accessing what it means for us to think about these things and embody them as we move forward. So today we get to Christology, and we inherit, I think, a high Christology, that is to say, who Jesus is in Scripture, in our view, and how he relates to Father is indeed a very exalted kind of understanding. And I think that's as it should be. And our texts bear this out. But before we get there, I want to start with something a little more pedantic. I want to go back to something that is just a little more literal. And forgive me if I've proof-texted it just a bit. But we think of embodiment and imaging in certain ways. When we talked about God last week, we noted that the commandment, first and second, deals with idolatry. No other gods before him and no graven images. That is to say, we are not to attempt to image God. God cannot be imaged, except that he chooses to image himself. And he images himself first in the creation of humankind, male and female, created in his image, humankind, the divine image embodied, and in Christ. We noted that the passage said he was the uh, perfect image of the Father. Now, I don't want to over-literalize that because we do have Christ taking on the form of humankind in a trajectory of sin the context of thousands of years of sin at the very least, if not many more. And so let's just look at this in terms of what Christ might have embodied, what we know about how he might have looked, or what that embodiment might have meant. When we speak of the human image of Christ, we have this first passage in Luke 2.52. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, body, and in favor with God and man. Doesn't tell us a lot about him, does it? When we get to Isaiah 53, 1 to 3, the passage says, Who's believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. And here's the part I would have you hear. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him 
in low esteem. This is a prophetic imaging of Christ for us. No beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The Gospels don't describe him to us. His face is nowhere given to us as described. Except in Scripture, apocalyptically. Daniel and Revelation have images for us. These were read for you just a minute ago, so I won't read the whole thing. But the thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And listen to the description of the Ancient of Days. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like white wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. And a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. And, of course, thousands were attending him. And then it describes a vision in which, in Daniel, and a little later in that same passage, in which the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven and approaches the Ancient of Days. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, and so we have a very clear connection as to what Daniel is talking about apocalyptically. God the Father, God the Son. When we turn to Revelation chapter 1, which was also read just a minute ago, we noted that there was a voice speaking amongst the lampstands. And amongst the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. There's that Daniel phrase again, and found elsewhere too. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, an image of fire. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. The river that flows out from the throne of God described in Daniel in this case as a river of fire flowing out from the throne of God. Father and Son apocalyptically imaged separately but together. Scripture makes little of the physical imaging of Christ. And so ought we to make little of the imaging physically of Christ. And here's where it gets meaningful. Christ has himself imaged in other ways. Not in iconography, not in idol, not in any other sort of fashion, not in description in Scripture. But he has himself imaged in the church. Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. An affirmation once again of the Son's embodiment or imaging of God. For in him all things are created, things in heaven and earth, visible and visible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Creator, sustainer of the world and the universe. Verse 18. And, and, he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, life and death. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The mystery of the relationship of father and son deepens. Unless we get carried away here, let's hear Paul's qualification of this supremacy in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 27. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, that is Christ, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So maybe I'm wasting my breath speaking of the embodiment of God in Christ and the embodiment of Christ because the mystery only deepens the more that we explore these things. The majesty and the power become more clear and the relationship more intimate. But parsing it, separating it, understanding it becomes increasingly difficult. Or am I? While we can have a deeper appreciation for the mystery of God as embodied in Christ and the mystery of Christ as embodied in church, we get our marching orders from this. We learn something about what it means to embody the story of God, what it means to embody the love of God, what it means to live out the story that we claim is so central and important in our lives. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. I'm going to spend just a second on some distortions of this. Perfection is a distortion of this. Plain and simple. While we are justified, made perfect before God in that moment of being covered in Christ's blood and righteousness and washed clean from our sins, and while we are sanctified, that is another old term and a fancy one for the fact that God continues to journey with us through His Spirit teaching us in all things and directing us into Christ's likeness In this journey, we never quite get to a place of perfection. There will always be something in us. There will always be something in us that can't quite get there. The only perfect people I know are proud and arrogant, so self-satisfied with their perfection that they've just fallen from perfection. Do you see the dilemma? The pursuit of perfection isn't what we are to be about. It is the pursuit of relationship with Christ and imaging Him in the context of body. If you get the idea that you in your face must reflect God perfectly, you will have an idolatrous and distorted view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you in your face will never perfectly reflect Christ. The Bible has never taught, nor will it ever teach, that you in your face are the embodiment of the living Christ. Otherwise, you would be Christ. What it is taught is that you are a member 
of the body of Christ, and that the body of Christ will reflect the living Christ. Is that clear? I know it's debatable. The debate has raged for generations in our church, but I hope I'm being clear. You see, when we acknowledge that we have been called to something greater than ourselves, when we accept an idea that's going to get more press later in what we would call ecclesiology, again, that gathering idea in systematic theology that comes a little further down the road, when we recognize the role of the Spirit in our midst, which is something I'm going to talk about in two weeks, our pneumatology, to use the fancy word. I don't expect you to remember these. It's okay. I'm just having fun. When we get down to this, what it comes down to is how do we live in community? And it goes back to my sermon of May 11. How do we collectively, together, reflect the love of God to the world? Because the Scripture says, we read it May 11, 1 John, God is love. If we love God and love one another, excuse me, if we love one another, that's proof that we love God and know God. If we cannot love one another, then we know not God because God is the embodiment of love. That was one of the texts we looked at on May 11. And so what we have to do is to decide if the story is compelling in such a way, compelling enough to bring us into fellowship with people that we are called to love and may not even like. Ever? I don't think this is that challenging of a notion because I don't meet that many families where everybody likes each other. I just don't. There are a few strange ones, and I just think immediately Waltons or something bizarre happening there. But, you know, basically, our families don't always like each other that well. Siblings have rivalries. There are cousins who have, have uh, picked on us in some kind of way that we found cruel, and we don't really want anything to do with them. Uh, there's that uncle who's just a little bit scary, or that aunt who's just plain outright crazy. Nuts, certifiable, and the, the tornado of chaos that follows her everywhere she goes invades family life. There's the grandparent whose idea of being in family is to lock himself in the den and watch TV and read a paper, never visiting with anybody. Let's face it, in our nuclear families, we don't like everybody. How are we supposed to do it in church? Well, we recognize at some level in maturity that, first of all, none of us are perfect. That sin thing is present in all of our lives and in all of our stories and in all of our families. And we try our best through the grace of Christ extended to us to extend grace yet to another. That's first step. Second step is we realize that just because we're a family doesn't mean we have to spend a ton of time together, Right? You know, thank goodness Thanksgiving afternoon is just an afternoon, right? <laughs> you eat, you laugh, you endure, you enjoy. 
you put up with, you celebrate, and it's over, hopefully. Except for those of you families who have people who come and stay for a month at a time. And the Lord bless and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you grace. No, you see what I'm saying? We aren't called to like each other per se. We're called to love each other and to serve one another and to serve one another in such a way that the world will see that we belong to God and God is present here among us because what he's accomplishing in a room full of kingdom misfits is a reflection of his own greatness and glory and power and mystery. For me, the more I study God, the less I know in a way. The divine mystery only deepens. I don't know if that's your experience or not, but I'm humbled every time I try to approach these subjects. I feel, in a way, intellectually defeated, and I think that's the way God wanted it to be. I am not meant to fully know. I am meant to know what I can and exercise faith and to trust that when he says that I am created in his image, that I am an embodiment of the living God, as you are. And to trust that when he calls me to a community of people whom he loves and has redeemed and are also embodiments of his image, that my task of loving is a deep reflection of the way in which God and Son and Spirit have loved the world. So we have an embodied Christ, an imaged Christ, imaged in his church. And I'm not going to spend a great deal of time spelling this out in terms of the way Paul does, what behaviors are acceptable and what aren't, what standards we ought to adopt and what standards we ought not to. I'm not going to chide us on rules for Christian living today. I'm just simply going to remind us that the question still stands. Is the story of Christ set within the larger picture, the larger story of God and humanity, compelling enough to organize your life around? And if it is, what does the imaged God tell us about that task? And what does the imaged Christ tell us about that task. And as we think about it, there'll be more in two weeks, because when we think about the way in which spirit is imaged, we get close to something very divine, and we get close to something very human. We get close to something called word. More about that in two weeks. Next week, we have the pleasure of welcoming three students from La Sierra, all of whom are better, better preachers at this point in their journey than I was after a couple of years at the pulpit. So I know you're going to be blessed and you're not going to want to miss that. In the meantime, let's uh, 
sing our concluding hymn? Well, actually, we've got to do offering. I forgot. How could I forget offering after last week's appeal? Well, you know the drill. Peter gave you what our giving targets are for today. Please be generous, and the deacons will collect the offering at this time. And so, gracious God, imaged in Christ and in us, and gracious Christ, imaged in this church and your church throughout the world, visible and invisible, O imaged spirit coming to us in word, Christ as word and God, we give you glory, we give you thanks. We celebrate the mystery, and we embrace the love. May we embody fully, corporately, together, the living Christ. Amen.